For your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. And we do want to indeed look at verses 13 through 23 this morning to finish out the chapter. Christ's prophetic childhood is what I've titled the message. And let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we have been singing your praises. And now, Lord, we want you to speak uh, to us. We want to hear from you through the word of God. Uh, It is the word of God. It is the the means by which you speak to us. We thank you for the, the living word, the living Holy Spirit who makes it come alive in our hearts. And so, Lord, we wait upon you. Help me to teach accurately and clearly in a way that brings glory to you and edifies your people. Lord, if there's anyone listening that has not yet come to a saving faith, pray that today you would work in their hearts, that they truly would put their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Commit our study to you now. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Matthew. The theme is Christ the King. And uh, first couple of chapters... Emphasis on the advent of the king, proving his legal uh, right to the throne by his genealogy, especially chapter 1, ramifications as we move into chapter 2. Now, we don't have a lot about the childhood of Christ in the Gospels, but uh, what we do have is strategic, uh, showing us that he is indeed the promised, prophesied Messiah in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, in Matthew, we see how he meets the genealogical qualifications uh, to a T. Uh, We see his supernatural virgin birth, showing that he is both God and man in one person. Uh, We see the Gentile wise men coming to worship him after his birth as we move into chapter 2. And now today at the end of Matthew chapter 2, we see how God sovereignly preserved the Christ child and how everything that was happening to him was in accordance with fulfilled prophecy. If ever there was a prophetic life, uh, it was the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Clearly, God wanted both the religious as well as the political establishments to know about this incredible development, namely the birth of the Messiah. It was a big deal. I mean, it was the the major uh, turning point in the history of the world. The arrival of the wise men from the east stirred up the whole of Jerusalem, which was the center, the political center, the religious center. It stirred up the whole of Jerusalem, as we found in chapter 2, verse 3. And yet, strangely, none of the religious leaders followed up about this prophetic development. Uh, They didn't even seem to be curious. They knew exactly when the the wise men asked where would he be born. They didn't have to do the research. They knew exactly where he would be born in Bethlehem of Judea, according to the prophet Micah. But then they weren't even curious enough to even follow it up. The whole of the city was moved, but but nobody moved on down the road five miles to uh, Bethlehem to check it out. Well, we noted last week. And when the wise men inquired where the king of the Jews was to be born, the religious leaders knew exactly. Referencing Micah 5.2, saying in Bethlehem of Judea. It's interesting, a little irony, how even these religious leaders, who would become the bitterest of Christ's enemies, unwittingly testified that his birth was a direct fulfillment of this messianic prophecy. Jesus met this most basic messianic qualification. He had to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Remember, there's two Bethlehems in Israel. One's way up north. Had to be born down south in Judea. 
He, was, he meets the qualifications of the Messiah as far as the prophetic qualification there. Well, the wise men then were led supernaturally by Christ's star. They came to the house where Jesus and his family were staying, and they worshipped him. Now, we know that worship is only to be attributed to God. They worshipped him. Then God warned them in a dream not to return to Herod and tell him the whereabouts of the, the newborn king of Israel, king of the Jews. So they departed to their homeland another way. And that brings us to where we are in our text today, Matthew 2.13. And as we now continue on in chapter 2, we find that Matthew builds on the theme of the fulfillment of prophecy related to the childhood of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed, that is, the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. It seems that God's uh, revelation to the wise men by way of dream and his revelation to Joseph by way of dream happened in very close proximity, time-wise. The wise men were told not to return to Herod, and Joseph was told to flee with his family to Egypt because Herod was going to try and destroy the Christ child. And note the language here in verses 13 and 14, emphasizing the preeminence of of the child by naming him first. Uh, Take the young child and his mother. Usually we'd say it the other way, right? Take the mother and the child. But consistently through the text here, it's always the child who is named first, uh, emphasizing that he has the preeminence. The focus is the child, really. I mean, they all have a part in the story. But it's really about the Christ child. He is the promised Messiah. He was not your average child. He is special. He is the the Christ child, the Messiah. Well, Egypt at the time was also under Roman rule, but it was outside the jurisdiction of of Herod, King Herod. Uh, There was a large settlement of about one million Jews living there at that time, and so Joseph and his family would have blended right in as fellow Jews. Egypt was about uh, 40 miles south of of Bethlehem, so it would have taken a little while to get there. I mean, they couldn't just jump in their car and go down there, right? Right. Uh, You know, they couldn't even, I don't think they were even riding bicycles. So, uh, you know, probably by donkey or by foot. And uh, scholars estimate that perhaps about 20 miles a day is what you would expect with a a small child, a family like this. So a couple days journey down there uh, to uh, Egypt. Uh, We are here. They're in this area right here. And they're going down here uh, into Egypt. That's where God's told them to flee. So they were in this area. Now they're going down here uh, to Egypt. And uh, as a side note, uh, God uh, knew everything that was going on in Herod's heart, didn't he? He told, he said, here's what, here's what Herod's plotting. Here's his plan. God knew what what Herod was thinking. Uh, Now, Herod had met secretly, as you recall, with the wise men, not wanting anyone to know his secret plotting, kind of dismissed all the religious leaders. You guys get out of the room. I just want to meet privately with these wise men. Uh, He had, he was plotting some things. But God knew it. God knew it. He always knows. No one can hide their innermost thoughts from God. And God, knowing his intentions, let Joseph in on it so he could flee 
to safety. Uh, we read lots of scriptures to this end, but notice uh, Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God knows everything. He knows every thought that's going on here in here this morning. So you might want to think good thoughts about me. I'm just, I'm just saying. <laughs> I might want to think good thoughts about you too, right? Yeah. Uh, people try and play games with God, but they always lose. They always lose. Herod sought information from the religious leaders on where the Christ child would be born. And evidently, he, he, he believed it in a sense, right? Because he moved on it. And yet, though he, in effect, believed in this prophetic book, yet at the same time he thought he could foil the plan of God. That is the height of folly. Uh, There's lots of Herods, by the way, in the world, in this brutal, mean old world, but never forget that God sovereignly controls all things. And in the end, God is always shown to be God. In theology, we often say that while God sovereignly controls all things, under that umbrella, he prevents some things, he promotes some things, and he permits some things. You can put everything kind of under one of those three categories, under the sovereign umbrella of God. And we see all three in our study this morning. Here in verse 13, God actively promotes Joseph and his family going to Egypt. Intervenes in a dream to Joseph. He's promoting this. This happened because of God's intervention. But in doing so, he was also preventing something. He was preventing the child from being destroyed. Verse 14. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. Didn't waste any time. There's a sense of urgency here. Joseph was immediately obedient all along the way. We see that as, as a, a character trait of him. He never put anything off. He's, when God tells him, he, he's moving on it. He didn't fritter around. He arose and took the young child, his mother, by night and departed. And that was really doing something because uh, at this time it was kind of dangerous and perilous to travel by night. But uh, Joseph got the point that it was time to move and that time was now. By the way, the word departed consistently is used uh, with the idea of withdrawing because of danger. Uh, There was danger, all right. Old wicked Herod was on the warpath and he was attempting to wipe out this newborn king of the Jews. And he was really a crazy man, as I will share with you a little bit more here. Uh, Perhaps demon controlled. I mean, this guy was crazy. He was crazy. And you say, well, he's the only political leader in history that's been that way. No, it's not true. Uh, We we could spend a lot of time now, but uh, we won't. Um, Verse 15. And was there, uh, took his mother by night, departed for Egypt, verse 15, and was there in Egypt until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. They remained in Egypt until the death of Herod. Now, history records very clearly that Herod died in 4 BC. That means that Christ was probably actually born in about 6 or 5 BC, which means that our calendars are off by about five or six years. Now, how could that happen? 
Well, that's another. That's for another time. I mean, it, it probably calls for all kinds of explanation. But I'm going to leave it there. You can do that study. Uh, our dating of Christ's birth is tied to the fact that it happened to, uh, in conjunction uh, prior to the, to the death of Herod. Probably by a year or two is what scholars generally tend to think. Now, why did God work this way? I mean, putting Joseph and Mary uh, with this small child through all of this. I mean, couldn't God have just protected them in place without them having to flee for the sake of the child? Well, of course, of course. God could have done that. With God, all things are possible. But it's interesting. Often God chooses to work through ordinary means. And he has a purpose in doing it the way he does it. And really, since he's God, I suggest that we just go along with it, right? I mean, he is God. It's his plan. It's his story. He can do it the way he wants. But here the stated purpose. We are given a purpose, right? And here the stated purpose is that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, this is a quote from Hosea 11, verse 1. And here's the way it reads. Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I I loved him. God speaking. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So Israel here is clearly called God's son. Well, in Matthew uh, 2, 5 and 6, recall that... uh, we have what is called a direct fulfillment of prophecy. The prophecy of Micah 5.2, with the Messiah being born in Bethlehem, prophesied to be born in Bethlehem. So we have a direct fulfillment of that, as seen in Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. But here in Matthew 2.15, we have what is called a typological fulfillment. In other words, there is a type or a symbol of prophetic truth in the Old Testament that is now fulfilled in the person, in the experience of Jesus Christ. Now, when it comes to that which is typological, we must let Scripture interpret Scripture. Otherwise, it quickly leads to people getting carried away with allegorical ideas that are not grounded in Scripture. So when it comes to the typological stuff, we want Scripture to interpret Scripture. Uh, We limit it to that and say, well, I think it means this. Uh, Unless there's some clear reason reason for doing so, we don't just start going with it. The Bible is God's story. It's always good to remember this. It is the word of God. It is the revelation of God. And he can tell it however he wants to do so. He tells us the story's central character is the Messiah, Jesus. Jesus. We don't have to wonder about this. After his resurrection, on the uh, road to Emmaus, uh, Jesus revealed himself to a couple of the disciples. A couple disciples, I should say. You know, not the disciples, uh, the apostles. But uh, notice uh, what he shared there. Luke 24, 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures. This is the Old Testament scriptures. The things concerning himself. They had Bible study on the road. And he is explaining, expounding to them in all of these scriptures 
The things concerning, he's connecting the dots. Here I am, here I am, here I am. Here's the Christ, here's the Christ. All the way through those Old Testament scriptures. C.I. Schofield has a great statement here. Here the Lord Jesus gave them the great key to understanding of scripture. That he himself is its subject. And that in him the entire book finds its unity. Oh, that is a great statement. We uh, also have a statement at the end of the book, which kind of is wrapping it all up and tying it all together. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. uh, John uh, says, of John, I fell at his feet to worship him, uh, the angel, which he shouldn't have been doing. uh, But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And this is the line I want us to see. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You see, prophecy always has Jesus as its theme, either directly or indirectly. Jesus in one form or another is the point. Jesus is the center and theme of all prophecy. Jesus is the grand subject of the entire Bible story, which climaxes in the book of Revelation with the words, and begins with the words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's both from him and ultimately about him. This is a book about Jesus. Now, lots of other sub-themes. Well, with this in mind, God is telling us in Matthew 2.15 that the history of Israel as God's son in their exodus from Egypt typifies the experience of his ultimate son, the Messiah, the son of God. In Exodus 4.22, Moses was to tell Pharaoh, quote, Thus says the Lord, that's Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Just as God's son Israel was brought out of Egypt as an infant son slash nation, so in like manner, God's son slash Messiah was to be brought out of Egypt as an infant. Israel as God's son was brought out of Egypt in the Exodus and as such was a prophetic type of what God would do with his greater son, Jesus the Messiah. Now in order for this typology to be fulfilled, the Christ child had to come out of Egypt. That's what he's saying. For this reason, God allowed this to happen the way it did. Now sometimes there are big picture themes Related to the the subject of prophecy. And this is one of those cases. And he's developing kind of a big picture scheme all the way through our study today. And I'll tie it together as as we work it through here. The big picture emphasis is that God brings his son out of Egypt. Which one? There's a two pronged emphasis. Son Israel. Son of Messiah. That's the big picture emphasis here. God brings his son out of Egypt. Now, prophecy often has a two-pronged emphasis in what is called prophetic telescoping. It involves a near partial fulfillment and a distant complete fulfillment. We see this many, many, many times in relationship to prophecy, in our study of prophecy. So again, uh, prophetic telescoping. We have a a near partial fulfillment 
But then there's a deeper fulfillment. Uh, There's a far more distant, complete fulfillment. Well, this prophetic emphasis on God bringing his son out of Egypt was fulfilled in part in Israel's exodus from Egypt, but also in a deeper, more complete sense in bringing his son, the Messiah, out of Egypt in infancy. Now, it's likely that Christ's stay in Egypt as a child was quite short, possibly only a few weeks or months. But here's the the story as the narrative continues. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. I mean, he wasn't just angry. He was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its districts. From two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Herod was a madman. And when he was mad, he was really mad. He was a mad killer. He was killer mad. Josephus called him, quote, a man of great barbarity towards all men. And that is true. You talk about being no respecter of persons. I mean, in a negative sense. I mean, this guy, it didn't, it didn't matter. Historians tell about an old man who was a veteran of Herod's wars. And he, one day as an old man, thought, I guess he thought, you know, what do I got to lose? I'm an old man here. What's it going to do? Fire me? And uh, so he came to Herod and he said, quote, the army hates your cruelty. Have a care, my Lord. Have a care. Many of the officers openly curse you. Have a care. John Phillips picks the story up and he says, Enraged, Herod had the old soldier stretched on the rack and tortured until he sobbed out meaningless confessions and accusations of treason. Herod urged the tortures on. The wretched man accused more and more officers by name as he was twisted and torn until his joints came apart and his bones cracked. Herod summoned the accused officers and turned a mob loose on them. Livid with rage, he jumped up and down as he screamed for the death of the suspected traitors. So much for, uh, take care, my Lord. (laughs) Uh, I mean, this man was crazy. He was a bizarre, crazy nutcase. I mean, you talk about, I don't care what leader you got in our country, I think they're going to have to line up behind this guy. Such was the temperament of this man we call Herod the Great. He was a vicious, paranoid man consumed with power. This was his God. It was really himself. Well, in exceeding rage, Herod sent his thugs to kill all the Jewish male children two years of age and under in Bethlehem and all the surrounding districts. Now, the age of the children to be killed was determined by the timeline that the wise men had told him. They evidently had told him that they had seen the special star in the east, indicating the birth of the king uh, of the Jews about two years earlier. Or maybe Herod rounded it up to two years just to make sure this young king of the Jews was killed. Now, scholars believe that Bethlehem was a very small village at this time, with perhaps about 300 people. That's a small village. And therefore, they estimate that uh, counting and taking into consideration of the surrounding districts, the small districts around Bethlehem, there would have perhaps been somewhere between 6 and 30 children under the age of 2 who would have been killed. 
Now, according to the killer standards of Herod, that was really a small operation. And therefore, historians such as Josephus did not even mention it. But for the small village of Bethlehem, it was horrific beyond description. Uh, can you imagine the little babies up to two years old, everybody in the, all in the village being killed off? Horrendous. Now, this is certainly an example of God permitting something to go on that is a total offense to him. And yet he remains sovereign all, over all that is happening. This is a good truth to keep in mind as we see political leaders in our day doing things that are very wrong. They are allowed to do these things, but God is bigger. He is still sovereign, and through it all, he is still accomplishing his purposes. We must always cling to the truth of God's sovereignty, even in the face of horrific circumstances, even when we have no clue as to why this is allowed to happen. God ever remains sovereign. And it's true, his ways are not our ways, they're bigger. God's always bigger. Verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, this is a quote from Jeremiah 31, 15, that he says is being fulfilled in the experience that Bethlehem and the surrounding areas were having. Jeremiah 31, 15, thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentations and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. We see the same quote here in Matthew 2, 18. Now, what we have here is another example of typological fulfillment of prophecy. And it's very important to understand the context in which this is given back in Jeremiah 31, 15. The context relates to the, the time of the Babylonian exile. Rachel is pictured as a mother figure in Israel who is poetically depicted as weeping over the children of Israel being taken away. Although at this point, she had been dead for 13 centuries. So she wasn't there in person, right? Rachel was buried near Ramah, which is about eight miles north of Jerusalem. And she was buried there as they were on their way to Bethlehem. She died before they got there. And so they buried her near Ramah. Now, Ramah was a staging area where the Jewish captives were gathered before being led off into captivity to Babylon. Therefore, Rachel being buried in this vicinity was symbolically pictured as weeping over the children of Israel being taken from the land. So, uh, map here, you know, here we are. Uh, Bethlehem area, it's just a, a few miles north here where uh, she's buried in this uh, vicinity, uh, Rachel. And this is where the area where, before they were taken off to Babylon, this is where they would gather uh, the Jews together. This exile to Babylon, removing the children of Israel from the land, happened in 586 B.C., which marks the beginning, are you ready for this? Which marks the beginning of the times of the Gentiles, in which the Jews would be trodden down by the Gentiles because of their sinful unfaithfulness to God. 
That's why this happened back here. That's why Rachel is symbolically pictured as weeping over the children, the mothers of Israel, weeping over what's happening to the children of Israel. It was because of their sinful unfaithfulness to God. Now, here they were, centuries later, still under the heel of the Gentiles, in this case, King Herod. And Rachel is still pictured as weeping over the loss of her children. Note in context, the Messiah had just been born and Israel was apathetic, resulting in continuing mournful consequences. Just as the mothers in Israel wept over the removal of their sons in the Babylonian exile, personified as Rachel weeping, so now there was a prophetic fulfillment of this typology in the weeping over the murder of these children in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. In a sense, this is all part of one big prophetic story, you see. Israel's story and the Messiah's story go together. Both of these calamities are part of the same larger story of Israel's sin climaxing in the rejection of her Messiah. The Jews, in rejection of God, suffered the mournful consequences of the Babylonian exile. This became a prophetic type of their mournful experience in their apathetic rejection of the Messiah at his birth. In both cases, the results were lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Now, ironically, and really prophetically, the wailing at the time of the Babylonian exile, which ushered in the times of the Gentiles, eventually brought about the rule of King Herod. And this atrocity, the Jewish mothers in Bethlehem, we're now experiencing. Verse 19. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Isn't it amazing how soon the day of accountability comes knocking? Herod died in 4 BC, which was not long after Jesus was born, perhaps a, a year or two. Shortly after his attempt to destroy the Christ child, he himself died. And what a way to go out. How tragic. And now he has all eternity to regretfully think on it. And the way Herod died was what might be termed poetic justice. After playing the role of usurper as king of the Jews for 37 years, serving under the authority of Rome, Herod died. The Jewish historian Josephus recorded in great detail the account of his death. Again, John Phillips uh, summarizes. Tormented by the horrors of remorse, he would scream out for his loved and murdered wife, Maramne, and her murdered sons. Moreover, Herod was in the grip of a loathsome disease, which we think he probably picked up from a prostitute. He was covered with sores and full of mortifying wounds, horrible to behold. He could not eat without agony. His guards had to be changed frequently because they could not stand the stench emanating from his rotting stomach. His breath smelled like death. All the crimes of Herod's former years were visited upon his 70-year-old body. Death worked on the carcass of a living man as though he were already dead. And even though he was in such a pathetic state... As he was dying in this terrible misery, he still ordered the death of his son Antipater. Five days before the death, before his own death. Kill my son. 
As he was dying, he ordered many Jewish nobles to be rounded up and imprisoned. Josephus reported that Herod gave the order that upon his death, all these Jewish nobles were to be killed in order to ensure that there would be mourning throughout the land upon his passing. He was a very nice guy to the very end. Not. Postscript, by the way, postscript. Herod had ordered his, his sister, uh, Salome, and her husband to see that the killing of the Jewish nobles was carried out. But upon his death, they gave the order that the prison doors be opened, and they all went free. Herod's reign of terror was over. That is Herod the Great. Well, upon his death, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. This is the third time in Matthew 1 and 2 that an angel appeared to, uh, to Joseph in a dream. It would almost make you wonder, boy, I wonder what's going to happen tonight when I go to sleep. <laughs> in this case, the angel communicated, verse 20, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Note the, the pattern here. The young child and his mother. The young child and his mother. There's, con there's consistency all the way through here, emphasizing the child first. Well, God let Joseph know that Herod was dead and that he could now return to the land of Israel. And so he did. Note all the way through here, by the way, God is working through Joseph as the head of the home. He doesn't say, well, you know, I appeared to Joseph. Now I'm going to do it to, with Mary. Uh, nope. All the way through, he's dealing with Joseph as the head of the home. And Joseph is as the head of the home to take the lead, which he did. It was his responsibility to lead and to move the family, which he did. Verse 22. So we get into the land of Israel. And what then? Verse 22. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. Now, evidently, Joseph had planned to go back to the Bethlehem area in Judea. But when he got back into the land of Israel, he found out that Archelaus, the son of Herod, was now ruling over Judea. And this rightfully made him afraid. There was a proper place for fear, by the way. Say, well, I have no fear. I'm just a great person of faith. Well, you might be just plain stupid. <laughs> uh, there is a place for fear. Uh, notice uh, he was afraid to go there. There is some common sense realities that enter into life. Now, there's a sinful fear, of course. God has not given a spirit of fear, but a power of love and sound mind. But, uh, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a proper place uh, for this is not a good idea. I'm afraid to go there. Now, um, upon Herod's death, Caesar Augustus broke Herod's little empire up into three separate regions and gave three of Herod's sons ruling authority over them. Archelaus now ruled over Judea, Samaria, and Idumea. Herod Antipas ruled over Galilee and Perea, and Herod Philip ruled over the area northeast of the Sea of Galilee. So uh, note uh, the map up here. This uh, Archelaus uh, has this area, uh, Samaria, Judea, Idumea. And uh, a couple of the other sons have these areas here. And, and they weren't as bad, but Archelaus was really bad. He was, he was a chip off the old block. It's like his dad. Same ruthless tendencies. 
He basically picked up where his vicious father left off. He ruled for nine years from 4 BC when his dad died until AD 6. Now, one of the first acts of Archelaus was to put to death 3,000 Jews in the temple because some of them were demanding that those who had committed atrocities under Herod the Great be punished. He said, okay, I'll show you. I'll just kill you, which he did, 3,000 of them. Therefore, the Jews hated him from day one, but they also feared him, as we see reflected in Joseph. Now, the reign of Archelaus was marked by brutality, immorality, and tyranny. And things got so bad that the Jews and the Samaritans, and when you can get the Jews and the Samaritans to come together on anything, you know you've got a really bad situation. (laughs) But they got a delegation together, the Jews and the Samaritans, and they made the trip to Rome to complain personally to Caesar. Augustus then summoned Archelaus to Rome and fired him out of fear of a revolution from the people. Well, Caesar proceeded to banish Archelaus... Without government funds, that's really bad. When you get fired and you have no funding. He, he banished him to the territory of Gaul. Where he died in short order. He died the same year. He was fired in 6 AD. Um, see here. Yeah, so here we are. Uh, he's over here in Judea, ruling like a vicious brute that he was. And he was summoned up here to Rome, the, the power center. And when he got there... Caesar says, you're going up here to Gaul without government funds. Well, this uh, bad boy, this vicious, spoiled brat bad boy, he didn't last very long up there, less than a year, and he dies there. Didn't last long on his own. Uh, Well, upon arriving back in the land of Israel and being fearful of returning to Judea because of Archelaus, God then warned Joseph in a dream and redirected his direction to go into the region of Galilee. Now he's telling us, how does it happen that Jesus ended up in Nazareth in Galilee? How did, it didn't just happen. This is according to what God is directing, and he's got a sovereign prophetic purpose in doing it. Now this is the fourth of Joseph's four revelatory dreams given in Matthew 1 and 2. And note how God works step by step in this whole process. He didn't show Joseph everything all at once. Rather, he led him one step at a time. And here is another good life lesson. This is how God normally leads. One step at a time. And we see that he often redirects us on the way. Um, Note that he often uses also circumstances to direct us. Uh, Just... As we follow this, uh, how he directed Joseph uh, to flee to Egypt, to return to the land of Israel, to the region of of Galilee, and then to the town called Nazareth. And note God used a mixture of things in getting Joseph where he wanted the family to be. Uh, There was supernatural revelation by way of dreams. There was circumstances that made Joseph afraid and evidently common sense reasoning. As Joseph was not specifically told to go to Nazareth, at least as far as we're told, God didn't give him that specific instruction. And yet it made sense because both Joseph and Mary hailed from this area. God is sovereign and through a multitude of variables, he has his ways of getting us where he wants us to be according to his purposes. Verse 23. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth. 
that he, it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Uh-oh, we have a problem right here, right? What's the problem? Well, I don't know how you've been studying your Bible lately, but uh, where in the world do we find in the Old Testament that the prophet spoke up and said he should be called a Nazarene? Really? <laughs> I think you are. <laughs> no, no, that's not true. It's, it's not found there anywhere in the Old Testament. It's not there at all. Anywhere. It's just not there. Yeah, yeah, I think so, brother. Yeah. But, uh, you know, commentators have wrestled with this in terms of uh, where do we find this in the Old Testament? Uh, which, where is there a prophet that says this? Let alone prophets, plural, saying he should be called a Nazarene. Uh, Nazarene means one who is from Nazareth. That's the idea. He's a Nazarene. He's from Nazareth. Uh, I could make a joke about Council Bluffs right now, but I'll I'll refrain. Uh, Nazareth was a little town in Galilee, about 55 miles north of Jerusalem, or about 100 miles from the edge of Egypt. Now, guesstimates uh, put the uh, population at probably uh, a few hundred people, uh, maybe a thousand or more, but it was a fairly little place. So, uh, note here, uh, they were down in Egypt, and uh, he's coming back here, and evidently Joseph was thinking, well, we'll maybe settle back into this area. Evidently, they had some family there or something. But anyway, nope, up into Galilee, and they ended up here in Nazareth. On the edge, in the edge of the territory of Galilee. Now, there have been several ideas as to how we might understand this phrase, he shall be called a Nazarene, in fulfillment of that which was spoken by the prophets. How do we understand this? Well, some have tried to associate this with the word Nazarite, and maybe that's what we're talking about. Uh, but the word Nazarite has no messianic significance, and it has no connection with the town of Nazareth. A person who took a Nazarite vow was not to drink wine, touch anything unclean, or cut his hair. Now, clearly, Jesus did drink wine. In fact, they called him what? A wine-bibber. And we see this in texts like Matthew 11, 19. Clearly, Jesus was not a Nazarite, so this view has no credibility. Another view is that the word Nazarene in Hebrew has similar consonants to those in the Hebrew word translated as branch in Isaiah 11.1, which is a Messianic text. However, this single text of Isaiah 11.1 presents a problem. Because you see, Matthew 2.23 says the prophets, plural, say this. Not just one. Wycliffe Bible Commentary. By the prophets prevents our seeking only one Old Testament passage, thus making doubtful any play on words based on Nesser, that is, branch, in Isaiah 11.1. That's a great point. There is another word translated as branch, uh, designating the Messiah in the Old Testament. It is a Messianic designation. But it is a completely different Hebrew word. The most likely view in how to properly understand the phrase, he shall be called a Nazarene, is that in quoting from the Old Testament prophets, 
plural. Matthew is simply presenting a general truth found in various prophets that present the Messiah as a Nazarene-like character, namely that he would be a despised person. Thus, Matthew is appealing to a prominent theme in the Old Testament rather than to a specific text. You see, Nazareth was a little backwater place with a bad reputation. And from there, and those from there were looked down upon. Uh, So the term Nazarene in the Bible was really a a term of contempt. You know, just like people might call me a Counciltuckian, you know, kind of a term of contempt. He's a Nazarene. It's a term of contempt. In John 1.26, Nathaniel, Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? We have found the Christ. From Nazareth. Are you kidding me? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Come check it out. It's hard to believe that anything good's coming out of Nazareth. Has that kind of reputation. He should be called a Nazarene. That's not a, that's not a flattering statement. It's not a flattering term. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. That was the whole reputation. D.A. Carson, I think, rightfully summarizes. He is not saying that a particular Old Testament prophet foretold that the Messiah would live in Nazareth. He is saying that the Old Testament prophets foretold that the Messiah would be despised. In accord with prophecy, he came as the despised servant of the Lord. So he's, he's drawing all of those Old Testament prophecies that show this one, when he comes, is not going to be appreciated. He's going to be despised. He's going to be treated with contempt. Thus, the degrading term Nazarene was applied scornfully both to Christ and his followers, as we see in the New Testament scriptures. And that is certainly uh, seen many places in the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 22, 6, speaking prophetically of the Christ, the Messiah. But I am a worm and no man. That's how he's treated. A reproach of men and despised by the people. Isaiah 53, 3, he is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. This is what defined the Messiah. He was a despised person. He was a Nazarene in keeping with how the prophets characterized the Messiah would be. As you consider the section we covered today, all three of the prophetic emphases relate to oppression and affliction. That's the theme. Which, while being portrayed in the Old Testament, had a fuller application of fulfillment connected to the childhood experience of Christ. So note, by way of summary, out of Egypt I called my son. That was a context of oppression. Verse 18, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, a context of oppression. Verse 23, he should be called a Nazarene, a context of oppression. Prophetically, the Messiah would come into a context of oppression, and his experience would be one of contempt and being despised. Didn't have a pampered, didn't have a pampered experience when he came here, folks. That's not what the prophet said would be the experience of the Messiah. He would be called a Nazarene. A term of contempt. 
And this was certainly true of Jesus Christ, whose life culminated in what? Wonderful estimation? uh, Esteem? No. The cross. A Roman cross. A little application here. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 13, it says, Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. To follow Christ closely involves bearing his reproach. And I think true Christians in America are perhaps about to learn this, perhaps in a deeper way collectively than we've ever known before. Notice his reproach. You say, well, it's an honorable thing to... It is before God, but before the world to identify closely with Christ. It's a reproach. Are you kidding? You Neanderthal thinkers believe this stuff in the Bible and believe this about Christ? Are you kidding me? And what about loving your neighbor who's very immoral? I mean, to take the stands you Christians take is very hateful. You're all full of hate speech holding this Bible. You know that, right? It's a reproach. Note it's his reproach. That is Christ's reproach that we are called to bear. We are called to identify with Christ's rejection. He's outside the camp waiting for his people to come to him in the position of reproach. The true Christ of the cross is never popular or cool in the eyes of the world or with mere religionists. It's the cross that is the place of separation. The cross is the place of rejection. The world has no problem with morals, love, good deeds of Christianity. Oh, they they kind of golf clap for that, right? Watchman Nee said, show the world the fruits of Christianity and it will applaud. Show it Christianity and it will oppose it vigorously. Ah, there you go. You be nice Christians doing your nice little social work and we'll kind of applaud you. But you take a stand for the truth of Christ, which divides light from darkness. You take real stands on moral issues and you will find the world hates your guts and they want you dead. Let's go forth, bearing his reproach. They didn't put Christ on a cross for all the wonderful good things he did. And he did good things. He went about constantly doing good. He's healing people. You say, well, I don't like the way you healed him. Um, What's the problem here? Well, you did it on the Sabbath. You know, we got our little power center here, our little legalistic power center here, and we hate what you're doing here. You're threatening us. On and on. If we really want to be a serious follower of Christ, prepare to be termed, you understand the sense of what I'm talking about, prepare to be termed a Nazarene. In other words, despised and unappreciated. Let us go forth to him, bearing his reproach. You say, well, I kind of want a little health wealth now. Why don't you get into that, Pastor? Well, I don't do that. (laughs) Neither does the New Testament. It's the way of the cross. The prophetic portrayal painted by the prophets is fulfilled perfectly in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. First comes the cross, then the glory. You say, well, it's different for us. We have glory, 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 glory. No, we don't. There's a cross to bear. There's a reproach to bear if you're going to really identify with Jesus Christ. The glory is on the way, but we're not in the glory land yet. Christ fulfilled perfectly all of those reproach passages. All those Nazarene, if you will, 
understanding the sense of it. Nazarene passages. He fulfilled them perfectly. And just as sure, he will yet fulfill the glory passages. True story. I like true stories. Barry Leventhal was a young Jewish man who was a football player. This goes way back, you know, almost prehistoric. His team won the Rose Bowl in 1966. And he was the star of the game. One day, Hal, a campus minister, began a discussion with him about the, about the Messianic prophecies. He's Jewish after all, right? And he began to show Barry how the predictions in the Old Testament had been fulfilled in Jesus. Finally. I mean, Barry was listening to this. Finally, Barry blurted out, how could you do this? Do what? Hal asked. Use a trick Bible, Barry charged. You got a trick Bible to fool the Jews. Hal responded, what do you mean by a trick Bible? Barry said, you Christians took those so-called messianic predictions from your own New Testament and rewrote them into your edition of the Old Testament in order to fool the Jews. I guarantee you that those messianic prophecies are not in the Jewish Bible. Now hold on, Barry, Hal said. Now hold on, Barry. Do you happen to have a copy of the, of the Tanakh? The Tanakh is the, uh, is the Hebrew Bible. You know, they have the three divisions, the law, the prophets, and the writings. The Tanakh, the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew Bible. Do you have a copy of the Tanakh? Do you have your own copy? Well, I've got one from my bar mitzvah. So what? Then Hal said, well, I'm going to give you some verses. I want you to write them down. And I want you to go and read them in your own Tanakh. And we'll just leave it at that. Well, Barry was intrigued. And that night, he sat down and opened up his Tanakh that he hadn't opened since he was 13 years old. He was shocked. Shocked. Every prophecy Hal had given him was right there in his own Jewish Bible. When he got to Isaiah 53, it really caused him to think. And as he continued to study the prophecies, he came to believe that Jesus truly is the Messiah. He came to be a true believer and today is a professor at the Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Well, have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, in him is found the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. The way he is portrayed is fulfilled perfectly. He is the Lord and Savior of all those who truly from their heart believe in him in a life-changing way. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you too will be saved. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close this in prayer.